CD3 You can't really do spells, said Cern. Can you? Course you can't, said Galter. What's this stick? Esk had left the staff leaning against the tree. Cern prodded it cautiously. I don't want you to touch it, said Esk hurriedly. Please, it's mine. Cern normally had all the sensitivity of a ball bearing, but his hand stopped in mid-prod, much to his surprise. I didn't want to anyway, he muttered to hide his confusion. It's only an old stick. Is it true you can do spells? asked Galter. We heard Granny say you could. We listened at the door, added Cern. You said I couldn't, said Esk airily. Well, can you or can't you, said Galter, his face reddening. Perhaps. You can't. Esk looked down at his face. She loved her brothers, when she reminded herself to, in a dutiful sort of way, although she generally remembered them as a collection of loud noises in trousers. But there was something awfully pig-like and unpleasant about the way Gulta was staring up at her, as though she had personally insulted him. She felt her body start to tingle, and the world suddenly became very sharp and clear. I can, she said. Gulta looked from her to the staff, and his eyes narrowed. He kicked it viciously. Old stick! He looked, she thought, exactly like a small, angry pig. Cern's screams brought Granny and his parents, first to the back door and then running down the cinder path. Esk was perched in the fork of the apple tree, an expression of dreamy contemplation on her face. Cern was hiding behind the tree, his face a mere rim around a red, tonsil-vibrating ball. Galter was sitting rather bewildered in a pile of clothing that no longer fitted him, wrinkling his snout. Granny strode up to the tree until her hook nose was level with Esk's. Turning people into pigs is not allowed, she hissed. Even brothers... I didn't do it, it just happened. Anyway, you must admit it's a better shape for him, said Esk evenly. What's going on? said Smith. Where's Gulter? What's this pig doing here? This pig, said Granny Weatherwax, is your son. There was a sigh from Esk's mother as she collapsed gently backwards, but Smith was slightly less unprepared. He looked sharply from Gulter, who had managed to untangle himself from his clothing and was now rooting enthusiastically among the early windfalls, to his only daughter. She did this? Yes, or it was done through her, said Granny, looking suspiciously at the staff. Oh. Smith looked at his fifth son. He had to admit that the shape suited him. He reached out without looking and fetched the screaming Cern a thump on the back of his head. Can you turn him back again? he asked. Granny spun around and glared the question at Esk, who shrugged. He didn't believe I could do magic, she said calmly. Yes, well, I think you've made the point, said Granny. And now will you turn him back, madam, this instant, do you hear? Don't want to. He was rude. I see, 
Esk glared down defiantly. Granny glared up sternly. Their wills clanged like cymbals, and the air between them thickened. But Granny had spent a lifetime bending recalcitrant creatures to her bidding, and while Esk was a surprisingly strong opponent, it was obvious that she would give in before the end of the paragraph. Oh, all right, she whined. I don't know why anyone would bother turning him into a pig when he was doing such a good job of it all by himself. She didn't know where the magic had come from, but she mentally faced that way and made a suggestion. Galter reappeared, naked and with an apple in his mouth. What's happening? He said. Granny spun around on Smith. Now will you believe me? She snapped. Do you really think she's supposed to settle down here and forget all about magic? Can you imagine her poor husband if she marries? But you always said it was impossible for women to be wizards, said Smith. He was actually rather impressed. Granny Weatherwax had never been known to turn anyone into anything. Never mind that now, said Granny, calming down a bit. She needs training. She needs to know how to control. For pity's sake, put some clothes on that child. Gulter, get dressed and stop Greslin, said his father, and turned back to Granny. You said there was some sort of teaching place. He hazarded. The Unseen University, yes. It's for training wizards. And you know where it is? Yes, lied Granny, whose grasp of geography was slightly worse than her knowledge of subatomic physics. Smith looked from her to his daughter, who was sulking. And they'll make a wizard of her, he said. Granny sighed. I don't know what they'll make of her, she said. And so it was that a week later, Granny locked the cottage door and hung the key on its nail in the privy. The goats had been sent to stay with a sister witch further along the hills, who had also promised to keep an eye on the cottage. Badass would just have to manage without a witch for a while. Granny was vaguely aware that you didn't find the Unseen University unless it wanted you to, and the only place to start looking was a town of Ahulan Katash, a sprawl of a hundred or so houses about fifteen miles away. It was where you went to once or twice a year if you were a really cosmopolitan badassian. Granny had only been once before in her entire life and hadn't approved of it at all. It had smelt all wrong. She'd got lost, and she'd distrusted city folk with their flashy ways. They got a lift on the cart that came out periodically with metal for the smithy. It was gritty, but better than walking, especially since Granny had packed their few possessions in a large sack. She sat on it for safety. Esk sat cradling the staff and watching the woods go by. When they were several miles outside the village, she said, I thought you told me plants were different in fawn parts. So they are. These trees look just the same. Granny regarded them disdainfully. Nothing like as good, she said. In fact, she was already feeling slightly panicky. Her promise to accompany Esk to Unseen University had been made without thinking, and Granny, who picked up what little she knew of the rest of the disc from rumours and the pages of her almanac, was convinced that they were heading into earthquakes, tidal waves plagues and massacres, many of them diverse or even worse. But she was determined to see it through. A witch relied too much on words ever to go back on them. 
She was wearing serviceable black, and concealed about her person were a number of hatpins and a bread knife. She had hidden their small store of money, grudgingly advanced by Smith, in the mysterious strata of her underwear. Her skirt pockets jingled with lucky charms, and a freshly forged horseshoe, always a potent preventative in time of trouble, weighed down her handbag. She felt about as ready as she ever would be to face the world. The track wound down between the mountains. For once, the sky was clear, the high ram tops standing out crisp and white like the brides of the sky, with their trousseaus stuffed with thunderstorms. And the many little streams that bordered or crossed the path flowed sluggishly through strands of meadowsweet and go-faster route. By lunchtime, they reached the suburb of Ahulan. It was too small to have more than one, which was just an inn and a handful of cottages belonging to people who couldn't stand the pressures of urban life. And a few minutes later, the cart deposited them in the town's main, indeed its only, square. It turned out to be market day. Granny Weatherwax stood uncertainly on the cobbles, holding tightly to Esk's shoulder as the crowd swirled around them. She had heard that lewd things could happen to country women who were freshly arrived in big cities, and she gripped her handbag until her knuckles whitened. If any male stranger had happened to so much as nod at her, it would have gone very hard indeed for him. Esk's eyes were sparkling. The square was a jigsaw of noise and colour and smell. On one side of it were the temples of the disc's more demanding deities, and weird perfumes drifted out to join with the reeks of commerce in a complex rag-rug of fragrances. There were stalls filled with enticing curiosities that she itched to investigate. Granny let both of them drift with the crowd. The stalls were puzzling her as well. She peered among them, although never for one minute relaxing her vigilance against pickpockets, earthquakes and traffickers in the erotic until she spied something vaguely familiar. There was a small covered stall, black-draped and musty, that had been wedged into a narrow space between two houses. Inconspicuous though it was, it nevertheless seemed to be doing a very busy trade. Its customers were mainly women, of all ages, although she did notice a few men. They all had one thing in common, though. No one approached it directly. They all sort of strolled almost past it, then suddenly ducked under its shady canopy. A moment later they would be back again, hand just darting away from bag or pocket, competing for the world's most nonchalant walk title, so effectively that a watcher might actually doubt what he or she had just seen. It was quite amazing that a stall so many people didn't know was there should be quite so popular. What's in there? said Esk. What's everyone buying? Medicines said Granny firmly. There must be a lot of very sick people in towns, said Esk gravely. Inside the stall was a mass of velvet shadows and the herbal scent was thick enough to bottle. Granny poked a few bundles of dried leaves with an expert finger. Esk pulled away from her and tried to read the scrawled labels on the bottles in front of her. She was expert at most of Granny's preparations, but she didn't recognise anything here. The names were quite amusing, like Tiger Oil, Maiden's Prayer, and Husband's Helper. And one or two of the stoppers smelled like Granny's scullery after she had done some of her secret distillations. 
A shape moved in the stall's dim recesses, and a brown, wrinkled hand slid lightly onto hers. Can I assist you, Missy? said a cracked voice in tones of syrup figs. Is it your fortune you want telling, or is it your future you want changing, maybe? She's with me, snapped Granny, spinning around, and your eyes are betraying you, Hilda Goatfounder, if you can't tell her age. The shape in front of Esk bent forward. Esme Weatherwax? it asked. The very same, said Granny. Still selling thunder drops and penny wishes, Hilter? How goes it? All the better for seeing you, said the shape. What brings you down from the mountains, Esme? And this child, your assistant, perhaps? What's it you're selling, please? asked Esk. The shape laughed. Oh, things to stop things that shouldn't be and help things that should love, it said. Let me just close up, my dears, and I will be right with you. The shape bustled past Esk in a nasal kaleidoscope of fragrances and buttoned up the curtains at the front of the stall. Then the drapes at the back were thrown up, letting in the afternoon sunlight. Can't stand the dark and fog myself, said Hilter Goat Founder, but the customers expect it, you know how it is. Yes, Esk nodded sagely. Headology. Hilter, a small fat woman wearing an enormous hat with fruit on it, glanced from her to Granny and grinned. That's the way of it, she agreed. Will you take some tea? They sat on bales of unknown herbs in the private corner made by the stall between the angled walls of the houses and drank something fragrant and green out of surprisingly delicate cups. Unlike Granny, who dressed like a very respectable raven, Hilter Goatfounder was all lace and shawls and colours and earrings and so many bangles that a mere movement of her arms sounded like a percussion section falling off a cliff. But Esk could see the likeness. It was hard to describe. You couldn't imagine them curtsying to anyone. So, said Granny, how goes the life? The other witch shrugged, causing the drummers to lose their grip again just when they had nearly climbed back up. Like the horrid lover, it comes and go she began, and stopped at Granny's meaningful glance at Esk. Not bad, not bad, she amended hurriedly. The council have tried to run me out once or twice, you know, but they all have wives and somehow it never quite happens. They say I'm not the right sort, but I say there'd be many a family in this town a good deal bigger and poorer if it wasn't for Madame Goatfounder's penny royal preventatives. I know who comes into my shop, I do. I remember who buys buckaroo drops and shoe nor ointment, I do. Life isn't bad. And how is it up in your village with the funny name? Badass, said Esk helpfully. She picked a small clay pot off the counter and sniffed at its contents. It's well enough, conceded Granny. The handmaidens of nature are ever in demand. Esk sniffed again at the powder, which seemed to be penny royal, with a base she couldn't quite identify, and carefully replaced the lid. While the two women exchanged gossip in a kind of feminine code, full of eye contact and unspoken adjectives, she examined the other exotic potions on display, or rather, not on display, in some strange way, they appeared to be artfully half-hidden, as if Hilter wasn't entirely keen to sell. 
Hmm, don't recognise any of these, she said, half to herself. What do they give to people? Freedom, said Hilda, who had good hearing. She turned back to Granny. How much have you taught her? Not that much, said Granny. There's power there, but what kind I'm not sure. Wizard power it might be. Hilta turned around very slowly and looked Esk up and down. Ah, she said, that explains the staff. I wondered what the bees were talking about. Well, well, give me your hand, child. Esk held out her hand. Hilta's fingers were so heavy with rings that it was like dipping into a sack of walnuts. Granny sat upright, radiating disapproval, as Hilta began to inspect Esk's palm. I really don't think that is necessary, she said sternly. Not between us. You do it, Granny, said Esk. In the village I've seen you, and teacups and cards. Granny shifted uneasily. Yes, well, she said. It's all according. You just hold their hand and people do their own fortune telling, but there's no need to go around believing it. We'd all be in trouble if we went around believing everything. The powers that be have many strange qualities, and puzzling and varied are the ways in which they make their desires known in this circle of firelight we call the physical world, said Hilta solemnly. She winked at Esk. Well, really, snapped Granny. No, straight up, said Hilta. It's true. Hm. I see you going upon a longer journey said Hilta. Will I meet a tall, dark stranger? said Esk, examining her palm. Granny always says that to women. She says, no, said Hilta, while Granny snorted. But it will be a very strange journey. You'll go a long way while staying in the same place, and the direction will be a strange one. It will be an exploration. You can tell all that from my hand? Well, mainly, I'm guessing said Hilta, sitting back and reaching for the teapot. The lead drummer, who had climbed halfway back, fell onto the toiling symbolist. She looked carefully at Esk and added, A female wizard, eh? Granny is taking me to Unseen University, said Esk. Hilta raised her eyebrows. Do you know where it is? Granny frowned. Not in so many words, she admitted. I was hoping you could give me more explicit directions, you being more familiar with bricks and things. They say it has many doors, but the ones in this world are in the city of Ankh-Morpork, said Hilta. Granny looked blank. On Circle C, Hilta added. Granny's look of polite inquiry persisted. Five hundred miles away, said Hilta. Ah, uh, said Granny. She stood up and brushed an imaginary speck of dust off her dress. We'd better get going then, she added. Hilta laughed. Esk quite liked the sound. Granny never laughed. She merely let the corners of her mouth turn up. But Hilta laughed like someone who had thought hard about life and had seen the joke. Start tomorrow anyway, she said. I've got room at home. You can stay with me and tomorrow you'll have the light. We wouldn't want to presume, said Granny. Nonsense, 
Why not have a look around while I pack up the stall? Ahulan was the market town for a wide, sprawling countryside, and the market day didn't end at sunset. Instead, torches flared at every booth and stall, and light blared forth from the open doorways of the inns. Even the temples put out coloured lamps to attract nocturnal worshippers. Hilta moved through the crowd like a slim snake through dry grass, her entire stall and stock reduced to a surprisingly small bundle on her back, and her jewellery rattling like a sackful of flamenco dancers. Granny stumped along behind her, her feet aching from the unaccustomed prodding of the cobbles. And Esk got lost. It took some effort, but she managed it. It involved ducking between two stalls and then scurrying down a side alley. Granny had warned her at length about the unspeakable things that lurked in cities, which showed that the old woman was lacking in a complete understanding of headology, since Esk was now determined to see one or two of them for herself. In fact, since Ahulan was quite barbaric and uncivilised, the only things that went on after dark to any degree were a little thievery, some amateurish trading in the courts of lust, and drinking until you fell over or started singing, or both. According to the standard poetic instructions, one should move through a fair like a white swan at evening moves o'er the bay. But because of certain practical difficulties, Esk settled for moving through the crowds like a small dodgem car, bumping from body to body with the tip of the staff waving a yard above her head. It caused some heads to turn, and not only because it had hit them. Wizards occasionally passed through the town, and it was the first time anyone had seen one, four feet tall, with long hair. Anyone watching closely would have noticed strange things happening as she passed by. There was, for example, the man with three upturned cups, who was inviting a small crowd to explore with him the exciting world of chance and probability as it related to the position of a small dried pea. He was vaguely aware of a small figure watching him solemnly for a few moments. And then a sackful of peas cascaded out of every cup he picked up. Within seconds he was knee-deep in legumes. He was a lot deeper in trouble. Suddenly owed everyone a lot of money. There was a small and wretched monkey that for years had shuffled vaguely at the end of a chain while its owner played something dreadful on a pipe organ. It suddenly turned, narrowed its little red eyes, bit its keeper sharply in the leg, snapped its chain and had it away over the rooftops with the knight taking in a tin cup. History is silent about what they were spent on. A box full of marzipan ducks on a nearby stall came to life and word past the stall holder to land, quacking happily in the river, where by dawn they had all melted. That's natural selection for you. The stall itself sidled off down an alley and was never seen again. Esk, in fact, moved through the fair more like an arsonist moves through a hayfield or a neutron bounces through a reactor, poets notwithstanding, and the hypothetical watcher could have detected her random passage by tracing the outbreaks of hysteria and violence. But, like all good catalysts, she wasn't actually involved in the processes she initiated, and by the time all the non-hypothetical potential watchers took their eyes off them, she had been buffeted somewhere else. She was also beginning to tire. While Granny Weatherwax approved of night on general principles, she certainly didn't hold with promiscuous candlelight. 
If she had any reading to do after dark, she generally persuaded the owl to come and sit on the back of her chair and read through its eyes. So Esk expected to go to bed around sunset, and that was long past. There was a doorway ahead of her that looked friendly. Cheerful sounds were sliding out on the yellow light and pooling on the cobbles. With the staff still radiating random magic like a demon lighthouse, she headed for it, weary but determined. The landlord of the Fiddler's Riddle considered himself to be a man of the world, and this was right, because he was too stupid to be really cruel and too lazy to be really mean, and although his body had been around quite a lot, his mind had never gone further than the inside of his own head. He wasn't used to being addressed by sticks, especially when they spoke in a small piping voice and asked for goat's milk. Cautiously, aware that everyone in the inn was looking at him and grinning, he pulled himself across the bar top until he could see down. Esk stared up at him. Look him right in the eye, Granny had always said. Focus your power on him, stare him out. No one can outstare a witch, except a goat, of course. The landlord, whose name was Skiller, found himself looking directly down at a small child who seemed to be squinting. What? he said. Milk, said the child, still focusing furiously. You get it out of goats, you know. Skiller sold only beer, which his customers claimed he got out of cats. No self-respecting goat would have endured the smell of the fiddler's riddle. We haven't got any, he said. He looked hard at the staff and his eyebrows met conspiratorially over his nose. You could have a look, said Esk. Skiller eased himself back across the bar, partly to avoid the gaze which was causing his eyes to water in sympathy, and partly because a horrible suspicion was congealing in his mind. Even second-rate barmen tend to resonate with the beer they serve, and the vibrations coming from the big barrels behind him no longer had the twang of hop and head. They were broadcasting an altogether more lactic note. He turned a tap experimentally and watched a thin stream of milk curdle in the drip bucket. The staff still poked up over the edge of the counter like a periscope. He could swear that it was staring at him too. Don't waste it, said a voice. You'll be grateful for it one day. It was the same tone of voice Granny used when Esk was less than enthusiastic about a plateful of nourishing salad greens, boiled yellow until the last few vitamins gave in. But to Skiller's hypersensitive ears, it wasn't an injunction, but a prediction. He shivered. He didn't know where he would have to be to make him grateful for a drink of ancient beer and curdled milk. He'd rather be dead first. Perhaps he would be dead first. He very carefully wiped a nearly clean mug with his thumb and filled it from the tap. He was aware that a large number of his guests were quietly leaving. No one liked magic, especially in the hands of a woman. You never could tell what they might take it into their heads to do next. Your milk, he said, adding, Miss. I've got some money, Esk said. Granny had always told her, always be ready to pay and you won't have to. People always like you to feel good about them. It's all headology. No, wouldn't dream of it, said Skiller hastily. 
He leaned over the bar. If you could see, uh, your way clear to turning the rest back, though. Not much call for milk in these parts. He sidled along a little way. Esk had leaned the staff against the bar while she drank her milk, and it was making him uncomfortable. Esk looked at him over a moustache of cream. I didn't turn it into milk. I just knew it would be milk because I wanted milk, she said. What did you think it was? Uh, beer? Esk thought about this. She vaguely remembered trying beer once, and it had tasted sort of second-hand. But she could recall something which everyone in Badass reckoned was much better than beer. It was one of Granny's most guarded recipes. It was good for you, because there was only fruit in it, plus lots of freezing and boiling and carefully testing of little drops with a lighted flame. Granny would put a very small spoonful in her milk if it was a really cold night. It had to be a wooden spoon, on account of what it did to metal. She concentrated. She could picture the taste in her mind, and with the little skills that she was beginning to accept but couldn't understand, she found she could take the taste apart into little coloured shapes. Skiller's thin wife came out of their back room to see why it had all gone so quiet, and he waved her into shocked silence as Esk stood swaying very slightly with her eyes closed and her lips moving. Little shapes that you didn't need went back into great pools of shapes, and then you found the extra ones you needed and put them together, and then there was a sort of hook thing which meant that they would turn anything suitable into something just like them, and then... Skiller turned very carefully and regarded the barrel behind him. The smell of the room had changed. He could feel the pure gold sweating gently out of that ancient woodwork. With some care, he took a small glass from his store under the counter and let a few splashes of the dark golden liquid escape from the tap. He looked at it thoughtfully in the lamplight, turned the glass around methodically, sniffed it a few times and tossed its contents back in one swallow. His face remained unchanged, although his eyes went moist and his throat wobbled somewhat. His wife and Esk watched him as a thin beading of sweat broke out on his forehead. Ten seconds passed, and he was obviously out to break some heroic record. There may have been steam curling out of his ears, but that could have been a rumour. His fingers drummed a strange tattoo on the bar top. At last he swallowed, appeared to reach a decision turned solemnly to Esk and said, His brow wrinkled as he ran the sentence past his mind again and made a second attempt. He gave up. His wife snorted and took the glass out of his unprotesting hand. She sniffed it. She looked at the barrels, all ten of them. She met his unsteady eye. In a private paradise for two, they soundlessly calculated the selling price of 600 gallons of triple distilled white mountain peach brandy and ran out of numbers. Mrs. Skiller was quicker on the uptake than her husband. She bent down and smiled at Esk, who was too tired to squint back. It wasn't a particularly good smile, because Mrs. Skiller didn't get much practice. How'd you get in here, little girl? 
she said, in a voice that suggested gingerbread cottages and the slamming of big stove doors. I got lost from Granny. And where's Granny now, dear? Clang went the oven doors again, and it was going to be a tough night for all wanderers in metaphorical forests. Just somewhere, I expect. Would you like to go to sleep in a big feather bed, all nice and warm? Esk looked at her gratefully, even while vaguely realising that the woman had a face just like an eager ferret, and nodded. You're right. It's going to take more than a passing woodchopper to sort this out. Granny, meanwhile, was two streets away. She was also, by the standards of other people, lost. She would not see it like that. She knew where she was. It was just that everywhere else didn't. It has already been mentioned that it is much harder to detect a human mind than, say, the mind of a fox. The human mind, seeing this as some kind of a slur, wants to know why. This is why. Animal minds are simple and therefore sharp. Animals never spend time dividing experience into little bits and speculating about all the bits they've missed. The whole panoply of the universe has been neatly expressed to them as things to A. mate with, B. eat, C. run away from, and D. rocks. This frees the mind from unnecessary thoughts and gives it a cutting edge where it matters. Your normal animal, in fact, never tries to walk and chew gum at the same time. The average human, on the other hand, thinks about all sorts of things, around the clock and on all sorts of levels, with interruptions from dozens of biological calendars and timepieces. There's thoughts about to be said, and private thoughts, and real thoughts, and thoughts about thoughts, and a whole gamut of subconscious thoughts. To a telepath, the human head is a din. It's a railway terminus with all the tannoys talking at once. It is a complete FM wave band, and some of those stations aren't reputable. They're outlawed pirates on forbidden seas who play late-night records with limbic lyrics. Granny, trying to locate Esk by mind magic alone, was trying to find a straw in a haystack. She was not succeeding, but enough blips of sense reached her through the heterodyne wails of a thousand brains all thinking at once to convince her that the world was, indeed, as silly as she'd always believed it was. She met Hilta at the corner of the street. She was carrying her broomstick, the better to conduct an aerial search. With great stealth, however, the men of Ahulan were right behind Stay Long Ointment, but drew the line at flying women. She was distraught. Not so much as a hint of her, said Granny. Have you been down to the river? She might have fallen in. Then she'd have just fallen out again. Anyway, she can swim. I think she's hiding, drat her. What are we going to do? Granny gave her a withering look. Hilta Goatfounder, I'm ashamed of you, acting like a cowan. Do I look worried? Hilta peered at her. You do. A bit. Your lips have gone all thin. I'm just angry, that's all. Gypsies always come here for the fair. They might have taken her. Granny was prepared to believe anything about city folk, but here she was on firmer ground. Then they're a lot dafter than I'd give them credit for, she snapped. Look, she's got the staff. 
What good will that do? said Hilda, who was close to tears. I don't think you've understood anything I've told you, said Granny severely. All we need to do is go back to your place and wait. What for? The screams or the bangs or the fireballs or whatever, Granny said vaguely. That's heartless. Oh, I expect they've got it coming to them. Come on, you go ahead and put the kettle on. Hilta gave her a mystified look, then climbed on her broom and rose slowly and erratically into the shadows among the chimneys. If broomsticks were cars, this one would be a split-window Morris Minor. Granny watched her go, then stumped along the wet streets after her. She was determined that they wouldn't get her up on one of those things. Esk lay in the big, fluffy and slightly damp sheets of the spare bed in the attic room of the Riddle. She was tired but couldn't sleep. The bed was too chilly for one thing. She wondered uneasily if she dared try to warm it up but thought better of it. She couldn't seem to get the hang of fire spells, no matter how carefully she experimented. They either didn't work at all or worked only too well. The woods around the cottage were becoming treacherous with the holes left by disappearing fireballs. At least if the wizardry thing didn't work, then Granny said she'd have a fine future as a privy builder, or well sinker. She turned over and tried to ignore the bed's faint smell of mushrooms. Then she reached out in the darkness until her hand found the staff, propped against the bedhead. Mrs. Skiller had been quite insistent about taking it downstairs, but Esk had hung on like grim death. It was the only thing in the world she was absolutely certain belonged to her. The varnished surface, with its strange carvings, felt oddly comforting. Esk went to sleep and dreamed bangles and strange packages and mountains. And distant stars above the mountains and a cold desert where strange creatures lurched across the dry sand and stared at her through insect eyes. There was a creak on the stairs. Then another. Then a silence. The sort of choking, furry silence made by someone standing as still as possible. The door swung open. Skiller made a blacker shadow against the candlelight on the stairs, and there was a faintly whispered conversation before he tiptoed as silently as he could towards the bedhead. The staff slipped sideways as his first cautious grope dislodged it, but he caught it quickly and let his breath out very slowly so he hardly had enough left to scream with when the staff moved in his hands. He felt the scaliness, the coil and muscle of it. Esk sat bolt upright in time to see Skiller roll backwards down the steep stair ladder, still flailing desperately at something quite invisible that coiled around his arms. There was another scream from below as he landed on his wife. The staff clattered to the floor and lay surrounded by a faint octarine glow. Esk got out of bed and padded across the floor. There was a terrible cursing. It sounded unhealthy. She peered around the door and looked down on the face of Mrs. Skiller. Give me that staff. Esk reached down behind her and gripped the polished wood. No, she said, it's mine. It's not the right sort of thing for little girls, snapped the barman's wife. It belongs to me, said Esk, and quietly closed the door. She listened for a moment to the muttering from below and tried to think of what to do next. 
Turning the couple into something would probably only cause a fuss, and anyway, she wasn't quite certain how to do it. The fact was, the magic only really worked when she wasn't thinking about it. Her mind seemed to get in the way. She padded across the room and pushed open the tiny window. The strange nighttime smells of civilization drifted in. The damp smell of the streets, the fragrance of garden flowers, the distant hint of an overloaded privy. There were wet tiles outside. As Skilla started back up the stairs, she pushed the staff out onto the roof and crawled after it, steadying herself on the carvings above the window. The roof dipped down to an outhouse, and she managed to stay at least vaguely upright as she half slid, half scrambled down the uneven tiles. A six-foot drop onto a stack of old barrels, a quick scramble down the slippery wood, and she was trotting easily across the inn-yard. As she kicked up the street mists, she could hear the sounds of arguments coming from the riddle. Skiller rushed past his wife and laid a hand on the tap of the nearest barrel. He paused and then wrenched it open. The smell of peach brandy filled the room, sharp as knives. He shut off the flow and relaxed. Afraid it would turn into something nasty, asked his wife. He nodded. If you hadn't been so clumsy, she began. I tell you, it bit me. You could have been a wizard and we wouldn't have to bother with all this. Have you got no ambition? Skiller shook his head. I reckon it takes more than a staff to make a wizard, he said. Anyway, I heard where it said wizards aren't allowed to get married. They're not even allowed to... He hesitated. To what? Allowed to what? Skiller writhed. Well... You know, thing. I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about, said Mrs. Skiller briskly. No, I suppose not. He followed her reluctantly out of the darkened barroom. It seemed to him that perhaps wizards didn't have such a bad life at that. He was proved right when the following morning revealed that the ten barrels of peach brandy had indeed turned into something nasty. Esk wandered aimlessly through the grey streets until she reached Ahulan's tiny river docks. Broad, flat-bottomed barges bobbed gently against the wharfs, and one or two of them curled wisps of smoke from friendly stovepipes. Esk clambered easily onto the nearest and used the staff to lever up the oilcloth that covered most of it. A warm smell, a mixture of lanolin and midden, drifted up. The barge was laden with wool. It's silly to go to sleep on an unknown barge, not knowing what strange cliffs may be drifting past when you awake, not knowing that barges traditionally get an early start, setting out before the sun is barely up, not knowing what new horizons might greet one on the morrow. You know that. Esk didn't. Esk awoke to the sound of someone whistling. She lay quite still reeling the evening's events across her mind until she remembered why she was here, and then rolled over very carefully and raised the oilcloth a fraction. Here she was then, but here had moved. This is what they call sailing then, she said, watching the far bank glide past. Doesn't seem very special. It didn't occur to her to start worrying. For the first eight years of her life, the world had been a particularly boring place, 
and now that it was becoming interesting, Esk wasn't about to act ungrateful. The distant whistler was joined by a barking dog. Esk lay back in the wool and reached out until she found the animal's mind and borrowed it gently. From its inefficient and disorganized brain, she learned that there were at least four people on this barge and many more on the others that were strung out in a line with it on the river. Some of them seemed to be children. She let the animal go and looked out at the scenery again for a long time. The barge was passing between high orange cliffs, now banded with so many colours of rock, it looked as though some hungry god had made the all-time record club sandwich and tried to avoid the next thought. But it persisted, arriving in her mind like the unexpected limbo dancer under the lavatory door of life. Sooner or later she would have to go out. It wasn't her stomach that was the pressing point, but her bladder brooked no delay. Perhaps if she... The oilcloth over her head was pulled aside swiftly and a big bearded head beamed down at her. Well, well, it said. What have we here then? A stowaway, yes, no? S gave it a stare. Yes, she said. There seemed no sense in denying it. Could you help me out, please? Aren't you afraid I shall throw you to the... the pike? said the head. It noticed her perplexed look. Big, freshwater fish, it added helpfully. Fast, lot of teeth, Pike. The thought hadn't occurred to her at all. No, she said truthfully. Why, will you? No, not really. There's no need to be frightened. I'm not. Oh. A brown arm appeared attached to the head by the normal arrangements, and helped her out of her nest in the fleeces. Esk stood on the deck of the barge and looked around. The sky was bluer than a biscuit barrel, fitting neatly over a broad valley through which the river ran as sluggishly as a planning inquiry. Behind her, the ram top still acted as a hitching rail for clouds, but they no longer dominated as they had done for as long as Esk had known them. Distance had eroded them. Where's this? she said, sniffing the new smells of swamp and sedge. The upper valley of the river Ankh, said her captor. What do you think of it? Esk looked up and down the river. It was already much wider than it had been at Ahulan. I don't know. There's certainly a lot of it. Is this your ship? Boat, he corrected. He was taller than her father, although not quite so old, and dressed like a gypsy. Most of his teeth had turned gold, but Esk decided it wasn't the time to ask why. He had the kind of real deep tan that rich people spend ages trying to achieve with expensive holidays and bits of tinfoil, when really all you need to do to obtain one is work your arse off in the open air every day. His brow crinkled. Yes, it's mine, he said determined to regain the initiative. And what are you doing on it? I would like to know. Running away from home, yes, no? If you were a boy, I'd say you were going to seek your fortune. Can't girls seek their fortune? I think they're supposed to seek a boy with a fortune, said the man, and gave a 200-carat grin. 
He extended a brown hand, heavy with rings. Come and have some breakfast. I'd actually like to use your privy, she said. His mouth dropped open. This is a barge, yes, no? Yes. That means there's only the river. He patted her hand. Don't worry, he said. It's quite used to it. Granny stood on the wharf, her boot tap, tap, tapping on the wood. The little man, who was the nearest thing O'Hulan had to a dockmaster, was being treated to the full force of one of her stairs and was visibly wilting. Her expression wasn't perhaps as vicious as thumbscrews, but it did seem to suggest that thumbscrews were a real possibility. They left before dawn, you say, she said. Yes, he said. Uh, I didn't know they weren't supposed to. Did you see a little girl on board? Tap, tap went her boot. Um, no, I'm sorry, he brightened. They were zoons, he said. If the child was with them, she won't come to harm. You can always trust a zoon, they say, very keen on family life. Granny turned to Hilter, who was fluttering like a bewildered butterfly and raised her eyebrows. Oh, yes, Hilter trilled. The zoons have a very good name. Hmm, said Granny. She turned on her heel and stumped back towards the centre of the town. The dockmaster sagged as though a coat hanger had just been removed from his shirt. Hilter's lodgings were over a herbalist's and behind a tannery and offered splendid views of the rooftops of a hoolan. She liked it because it offered privacy, always appreciated by, as she put it, my more discerning clients who prefer to make their special purchases in an atmosphere of calm where discretion is forever the watchword. Granny Weatherwax looked around the sitting room with barely concealed scorn. There were altogether too many tassels, bead curtains, astrological charts and black cats in the place. Granny couldn't abide cats. She sniffed. Is that the tannery? She said accusingly. Incense, said Hilter. She rallied bravely in the face of Granny's scorn. The custom was appreciated, she said. It puts them in the right frame of mind. You know how it is. I would have thought one could carry out a perfectly respectable business, Hilter, without resorting to parlour tricks, said Granny, sitting down and beginning the long and tricky business of removing her hat pins. It's different in towns, said Hilter. One has to move with the times. I'm sure I don't know why. Is the kettle on? Granny reached across the table and took the velvet cover off Hilter's crystal ball, a sphere of quartz as big as her head. Never could get the hang of this damn silicone stuff, she said. A bowl of water with a drop of ink in it was good enough when I was a girl. Let's see now. She peered into the dancing heart of the ball, trying to use it to focus her mind on the whereabouts of Esk. A crystal was a tricky thing to use at the best of times, and usually staring into it meant that the one thing the future could be guaranteed to hold was a severe migraine. Granny distrusted them, considering them to smack of wizardry. For two pins, it almost seemed to her 
the wretched thing would suck your mind out like a whelk from a shell. <sighs> Damn things, all sparkly, she said, huffing on it and wiping it with her sleeve. Hilta peered over her shoulder. That's not sparkle. That means something, she said slowly. What? I'm not sure. Can I try? It's used to me. Hilta pushed the cat off the other chair and leaned forward to peer into the glass depths. Mmm, feel free, said Granny, but you won't find... Wait, something's coming through. Looks all sparkly here, Granny insisted. Little silver lights all floating around, like in them little snowstorms and a bottle toys. Quite pretty, really. Yes, but look beyond the flakes. Granny looked. This is what she saw. The viewpoint was very high up, and a wide swathe of country lay below her, blue with distance, through which a broad river wriggled like a drunken snake. There were silver lights floating in the foreground, but there were, in a manner of speaking, just a few flakes in the great storm of lights that had turned into a great lazy spiral, like a geriatric tornado with a bad attack of snow, and funneled down, down to the hazy landscape. By screwing up her eyes, Granny could just make out some dots on the river. Occasionally, some sort of lighting would sparkle briefly inside the gently turning funnel of moats. Granny blinked and looked up. The room seemed very dark. Odd sort of weather, she said, because she couldn't really think of anything better. Even with her eyes shut, the glittering moat still danced across her vision. I don't think it's weather, said Hilta. I don't actually think people can see it, but the crystal shows it. I think it's magic, condensing out of the air. Into the staff? Yes, that's what a wizard's staff does. It sort of distills magic. Granny risked another glance at the crystal. Into esque, she said carefully. Yes. There looks quite a lot of it. Yes. Not for the first time, Granny wished she knew more about how wizards work their magic. She had a vision of Esk filling up with magic until every tissue and pore was bloated with the stuff. Then it would start leaking, slowly at first, arcing to the ground in little bursts, but then building up to a great discharge of occult potentiality. It could do all kinds of damage. Drat, she said. I never did like that staff. At least she's heading towards the university place, said Hilta. They'll know what to do. That says maybe. How far down river do you reckon they are? Twenty miles or so. Those barges only got walking pace. The zones aren't in any hurry. Right, Granny stood up, her jaw set defiantly. She reached for her hat and picked up her sack of possessions. Reckon I can walk faster than a barge, she said. The river's all bendy, but I can go in straight lines. You're going to walk after her? said Hilter aghast. But there's forests and wild animals. Good. 
I could do with getting back to civilization. She needs me. That staff is taking over. I said it would, but did anyone listen? Did they? said Hilter, still trying to work out what Granny meant by getting back to civilization. No, said Granny coldly. His name was Amshat Bahal Zun. He lived on the raft with his three wives and three children. He was a liar. What always annoyed the enemies of the Zun tribe was not simply their honesty, which was infuriatingly absolute, but their total directness of approach. The Zuns had never heard about a euphemism and wouldn't understand what to do with it if they had one, except that they would certainly have called it a nice way of saying something nasty. Their rigid adherence to the truth was apparently not enjoined on them by a god, as is usually the case, but appeared to have a genetic base. The average Zun could no more tell a lie than breathe underwater, and in fact, the very concept was enough to upset them considerably. Telling a lie meant no less than totally altering the universe. This was something of a drawback to a trading race, and so, over the millennia, the elders of the Zun studied this strange power that everyone else had in such abundance and decided that they should possess it too. Young men who showed faint signs of having such talent were encouraged on special ceremonial occasions to bend the truth even further on a competitive basis. The first recorded Zun proto-lie was, actually, my grandfather is quite tall. But eventually they got the hang of it, and the office of tribal liar was instituted. It must be understood that while the majority of Zun cannot lie, they have great respect for any Zun who can say that the world is other than it is, and the liar holds a position of considerable eminence. He represents his tribe in all his dealings with the outside world, which the average Zun long ago gave up trying to understand. Zun tribes are very proud of their liars. Other races get very annoyed about all this. They feel that the Zun ought to have adopted more subtle titles, like diplomat or public relations officer. They feel that they are poking fun at the whole thing. Is all that true? said Esk suspiciously, looking around the barge's crowded cabin. No, said Amshat firmly. His junior wife, who was cooking porridge over a tiny ornate stove, giggled. His three children watched Esk solemnly over the edge of the table. Don't you ever tell the truth? Do you? Amshak grinned his gold-mined grin, but his eyes were not smiling. Why do I find you on my fleeces? Amshat is no kidnapper. There will be people at home who will worry, yes, no? I expect Granny will come looking for me, said Esk, but I don't think she will worry much. Just be angry, I expect. Anyway, I'm going to ank Morpok. You can put me off the ship boat, if you like. I don't mind about the pike. I can't do that, said Amshat. Was that a lie? No. This is wild country around us, robbers and things. Esk nodded brightly. That's settled then, she said. I don't mind sleeping in the fleeces, and I can pay my way. I can do... She hesitated, 
Her unfinished sentence hung like a little curl of crystal in the air while discretion made a successful bid for control of her tongue. Helpful things, she finished lamely. She was aware that Amshat was looking slightly sideways at his senior wife who was sewing by the stove. By Zoon tradition, she wore nothing but black. Granny would have thoroughly approved. What sort of helpful things? he asked. Washing and sweeping, yes, no? If you like, said Esk. Or distillation using the bifold or triple alembic, the making of varnishes, glazes, creams, zoomchats and poons, the rendering of waxes, the manufacture of candles, the proper selection of seeds, roots and cuttings, and most preparations from the eighty marvellous herbs. I can spin, card, ret, fallow and weave on the hand, frame, harp and noble looms, and I can knit if people can start the wool on for me. I can read soil and rock, do carpentry up to the three-way mortars and tenon, predict weather by means of beast sign and sky wreck, make increase in bees, brew five types of mead, make dyes and mordants and pigments, including a fast blue. I can do most types of white smithing, mend boots, cure and fashion most leathers, and if you've got any goats, I can look after them. I like goats. Amshat looked at her thoughtfully. She felt she was expected to continue. Granny never likes to see people sitting around doing nothing, she offered. She always says a girl who is good with her hands will never want for a living, she added, by way of further explanation. Or her husband, I expect, nodded Amshat weakly. Actually, Granny has a lot to say about that. I bet she did, said Amshat. He looked at the senior wife, who nodded almost imperceptibly. Very well, he said. If you can make yourself useful, you can stay. And you can play a musical instrument? Esk returned his steady gaze, not batting an eyelid. Probably. And so Esk, with the minimum of difficulty and only a little regret, left the Ramtops and their weather and joined the Zoons on their great trading journey down the Ark. There were at least thirty barges, with at least one sprawling Zoon family on each and no two vessels appeared to be carrying the same cargo. Most of them were strung together, and the Zoons simply hauled on the cable and stepped onto the next deck, if they fancied a bit of socialising. Esk set up home in the fleeces. It was warm, smelled slightly of Granny's cottage, and much more important, meant that she was undisturbed. She was getting a bit worried about magic. It was definitely getting out of control. She wasn't doing magic. It was just happening around her, and she sensed that people probably wouldn't be too happy if they knew. It meant that if she washed up, she had to clatter and splash at length to conceal the fact that the dishes were cleaning themselves. If she did some darning, she had to do it on some private part of the deck to conceal the fact that the edges of the hole raveled themselves together as if... as if by magic. Then she woke up on the second day of her voyage to find that several of the fleeces around the spot where she had hidden the staff had combed, carded and spun themselves into neat skeins during the night. She put all thoughts of lighting fires out of her head. There were compensations, though. Every sluggish turn of the great brown river brought new scenes. There were dark stretches hemmed with deep forest, through which the barge travelled in the dead centre of the river with the men armed and the women below, except for Esk, who sat listening with interest to the snortings and sneezings that followed them through the bushes on the bank. There were stretches of farmland. 
There were several towns much larger than Ohulan. There were even some mountains, although they were old and flat and not young and frisky like her mountains. Not that she was homesick, exactly, but sometimes she felt like a boat herself, drifting on the edge of an infinite rope, but always attached to an anchor. End of CD 3